Welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this podcast I explore what has influenced politicians, opinion formers and business leaders. In this episode I speak to a remarkable entrepreneur. Dominic McVeigh is in his early 30s and has already set up a number of successful businesses including in Africa and Asia. When he was 18 years old he was recognised by the Queen as a pioneer in entrepreneurship and was a millionaire by the age of 15. I mean, honestly. He passionately believes that the private sector has a huge role to play in improving society, and he talks in this podcast why it's important for businesses to have a purpose and to do good. His mantra is, doing good is good business. He is also an ambassador for the Halo Trust, who are kindly supporting this episode. We all remember those iconic pictures of Princess Diana in Halo body armour in a minefield. Halo clears landmines, but they also work around the globe to reduce armed violence and conflict, and to enable stable environments for communities and economies to thrive. Halo is leading the conversation on how the UK can spend more of its aid money on tackling problems caused by weapons and bombs in fragile countries. Halo believes nothing drives poverty more than violence and war. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. Growing up, um, obviously we've, we now know, you know, we know your, your very impressive uh, CV and the achievements you've done. It'd be, you know, it's really interesting how, how you got into it so, so early. And so what would you say if you had to sort of define the idea or thing that guided you in those early years, what would that be? Oh, it's, 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 it's a tough question and one I often think about but don't dwell on. But tra- travel has to be uh, one of the key things, you know, experience different lives, different cultures, different foods, uh, languages at such a young age. Certainly opened my eyes to see far more than what other eight, nine or ten year olds were experiencing. And because of that, I, I I had a beer in my bonnet about wanting to do things differently. You know, I, I in some senses like an explorer bringing back new concepts to to his homeland. Uh, it was clear that most kids in the classroom uh, had never been to the countries or even heard of it, some of the countries that I'd uh, been visiting. And there were concepts and ideas which seemed so crazy uh, at first but in reality could be entirely relevant to British society. Give us some examples. Sushi trains and wagamamas and brands like this are purporting to sell authentic Japanese food and with an anglophile twist and they've become very successful and Simon who set up Yo Sushi had been in Tokyo, ate on a sushi train and brought it back. I mean the fact was he'd gone to a country not many people were going to and saw new cultures mm. and, and ideas and and brought it to the UK. And, you know, I think in in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was a, a lot of influence from countries within the Commonwealth, but Japan was not a country that particularly influenced Britain. And the, 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 the movement in technology and, and, and the pace of concepts and ideas there and just the buzz you've got walking around Tokyo, it's just noise everywhere. I mean, it still is. And 
flashing lights and roller coasters in the city centre. It makes you excited about life and uh, just really got me thinking at a young age, what could I, what, what have I learned? What could I do? What could I share? And I was able to challenge people on, on concepts of which they, they had not experienced. How, how old were you when all this was going on? I first started travelling a lot, by the, I think around the age of eight years old. Um, and I got right. put on a plane by my mum. It was the Easter holidays and my dad was working in Japan. And I turned up at Heathrow Airport and I was told, you're going off to see your dad. Um, and I'd never been on a long haul flight before. I've probably been on a flight mm. about two times in my life prior to that to Greece or somewhere for summer holidays. And I was so scared about getting on that plane. Did not want to leave my mum. Didn't want to get on a plane on my own. And you know, mm. sat up in the in thirty five thousand feet up for ten hours. And I tried to convince the pilot on the first flight that if I could call my mum. Um, <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. That's so sweet. Um, so you were eight when you first started traveling, and by you know, in only 10 years, <laughs> within 10 years of you stepping on your first long haul flight, at the age of 18, you were recognised by the Queen as a pioneer in entrepreneurship. So what happened? Tell us a bit more as to what happened in those 10 years. It's nuts when you put it like that, Laura. It is nuts. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. It's scary. and. It is, it is, it is a little bit intimidating. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but yeah, tell me, tell me how, how, how you got to where you got at 18. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, I've, it's never been put to me like that. Um, and for those listening uh, to the conversation, I think you're right. We should talk about what happened in those 10 years. So I, between the ages of eight and 10, I must've gone to Japan three or four times to visit my dad and been to countries like Australia as well and spent time in the US with him. Even spent a week at school in America at some point in upstate New York. And, you know, I, I go back to the point, I saw a lot of the world and got a lot of ideas and quite quickly got a bee in my bonnet to try and do something myself. And I was bored at school, um, wasn't being inspired. In geography lessons, often teachers had asked me to come up and talk about cultures, which... Sounds quite, uh, you know, I, I might sound a bit arrogant in that statement, but it was, my school was very encouraging of everyone to talk about their experiences. And it just so happened that I'd had quite a few that others unfortunately hadn't. And hmm. that built my confidence a lot as well. But I also went to a school where I was the poorest kid in the classroom. And that was made pretty clear to me by a number of the less pleasant children that I went to school with. And I wanted to prove to people mm. that I had something special. I, I had something unique. And I realized that the, the, the experiences in my life uh, were very valuable. The school teacher was asking me to talk about what is happening on the other side of the world. Then clearly I've got something that other people don't know about. And I got very into computers. Um, I was very keen to uh, develop my skills with technology. And around the age of 10 or 11, I got my first 
computer. When I was born, a number of family members had kindly put some money into what was called a PEP back then. And they're now known mm. as ISIS. And after right. 10, 11 years, it, it had matured. And my dad said to me, you've got some money, and, you know, uh, which was like left from like grandparents that passed away and whatnot. And wh- what would you like to do with it? Would you like to save it again? Or do you want to do something with it? And I said, I want to buy a computer. Um, my parents didn't have the money to go out and buy me a computer, and uh, I saw it. I always wanted a computer. So, I, I How, why do you think? What? Why was that? Because you saw the potential of like what you could do with it, or because you were just wanting to learn about it? I saw huge potential with technology, and I also realised that I could connect to the world far better. You know, the businesses that mm. I'd seen in Japan and. Uh, you know, emails were just starting to, to, to crop up and websites were t- starting to be talked about. You know, we're talking 25 years ago, right? So mm-hmm. not a lot was happening, but I really saw potential with building communities and, and, and connectivity. So I got this computer um, and started building my own website. And I think I was online with a CompuServe, it was known as back then. And it came with a website builder. And I built this website called wickedbydom.com. Because what was happening, I remember going to Japan when I was about 10 or 11, and one of the parents of a close friend at school said to me, oh, do you, do you know about mini disks?" And I said, yeah, everyone's got a mini disc player in Japan. I said, can you bring me one back? I'll pay you. And I think my mum said to me, yeah, you can bring him one back, but charge, charge him 50 quid. So I went to Japan and I brought this mini display back and I sold it to a, a friend's father. The benefit of going to school with kids that had money was that their parents had money to spend, right? So <laughs> I sold this, uh, a friend of mine, Hannah, I sold her dad a mini display and I made 50 pounds. And I thought, wow, I've got products that you can't buy in the UK and I know who to buy them from. There was, there's an area in Japan which was famous for electronics called Akihabara. And it still is, you know, quite an intensely visited place for people looking for newest discoveries in the, in the technology sector. Um, hmm. And I said to him, look, if you've got any friends at work that want them, um, my dad's coming back from Japan soon and I can get him to bring some. So I, I worked out quite quickly what, what commerce and trade was, particularly when you had something people couldn't get. And so I set this website up. I called it wickedbydom.com. And <laughs> I kind of used to populate it with pictures I took of products in Japan or bad screen grabs um, from search engines, which were, you know, this is prior to Google. Google wasn't knocking around. It was quite hard to find mm. pictures and put them on websites. Um, so I was trying to sell goods from Japan on this website. And at the same time, I was trying to get myself a credit card. You know, just because I was 11 or 12 now, going through the years, uh, didn't mean that I wanted to wait for anything. So if I wanted a credit card, I was going to try and get one. That didn't quite work. So I think I ended up using my dad's credit card. Um, but mm. then I was opening trading accounts in his name without him realizing it, buying stocks and shares in companies that I liked. <laughs> Um, I'm not promoting this, anyone that's listening. That is cheeky. <laughs> um, I was probably under the age of legal consent to be prosecuted as well. Um, 
but I I was you know using my dad's card to try and fulfil my ambitions as a businessman, um, a business child. Is that boy a business yeah, boy? Business boy. Um, business boy. <laughs> so quickly, I tried to find my own credit card, looking for Visa, and I found these scooters called Visa. I spelt Visa wrong. It was micro scooters, fold up petrol. Well, it was initially fold up petrol scooters, mm. and I thought they were great. And I kind of tried to work out how I could. So going back to the point that I might have been twelve or thirteen, but I wanted to be an adult. I also wanted to be able to drive at twelve or thirteen on the roads and get around town. Right. Um, so that's what really excited me. One of the driving forces of me liking fold up motorized scooters, um, because there was a real loophole in them and it wasn't quite clear if you could drive them on the road or not so i convinced this company in america to give me one for free but it wasn't quite as straightforward as that they insisted that that i had to buy five to get one for free and this went on for like six seven months and i was trying to get my mum and dad to give me the money of course i didn't have the money don't even know why i asked um and i was trying to work out you know could i borrow some money from somewhere and i tried to get money off the prince's trust didn't quite work out and um, in the end, I managed to sell five scooters because what I did was I bought loads of marketing material and went around to all the rich parents at the school and sold them scooters. And right. I got sold my five and I got my six one for free. And there was, there was two driving forces for this. One, I wanted a scooter for me. I think that was the, uh, the main driving force. The second driving mm. force was and not so important, but it was to make money. And I was able to sell five had one for free and I, and I I made a bit of cash and it went from there. And eventually, you know, the, the fold up motorized scooters were not as successful as the fold up razor scooters, which the same manufacturer and distributor uh, produced. And the fold up razor scooters, some people know them as micro scooters. It went bonkers. And we're talking 23 years ago now. Yeah. So I remember they were everywhere. Everywhere, and they're, they're still in society today, and there's electrified versions of them, yeah. which I was working on. I, I developed electric fold-up scooters 20 years ago, but my hopes around that got dashed by Ken Livingstone because I, I wrote to him and I lobbied him hard to develop park and ride and electrified scooter stations in London, hmm. and he referred it to the House of Lords, and I, I, I have the letter somewhere, and someone at the House of Lords wrote to me and said, these things are not legal and, and fit for British roads. Um, and they mm. never went anywhere. But thankfully, you know, there's bigger and smarter organisations and people out there than I am that have come back and are pushing clean technologies. But, you know, to go back to those years, those 10 years between 8 and 18, by the time I was 15 or 16, I was involved in the sale of several million scooters, fold up and motorised throughout the globe from my bedroom. Um mm via wickedbydom.com, Scooters UK, <laughs> all kinds of websites. I had, I think that one, I had a top 100 website at one point globally uh, visited wow. for my scooters. I wow. was selling scooters to anyone and everyone that would buy them. Um, and I was just a middleman. I mean, I don't want to downplay it. And at the same time, I don't want to glorify it. You can run a successful business from your bedroom. Um, and I was doing it whilst at school uh, in my early teens, at the same time trying to get a girlfriend, um, uh, and quite quickly became recognised for my my work and talent. And I think ultimately it was my energy, Laura, that, that drove me to do it. The tenacity, which is a common trait in entrepreneurs, 
But entrepreneur it, uh, yeah. was was yeah a new concept and theme, and and eventually I think the Queen heard about what I was up to and recognised me for being a pioneer in entrepreneurship, which um, it was a very proud moment. Except that I was on BBC News extremely drunk whilst shaking the Queen's hand because I was serving <laughs> gin and tonics, and I'd never <laughs> drunk gin and tonic before. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And so that that is that's really fascinating and that has really set you up for um the rest of your life. Um because if we go to sort of to the next stage of what impact ideas have had on your life, I think your mantra is doing good is good business. Is that fair? Sure is. Doing good is good business, yeah. I can testify to that. How did you find out that doing good is good business? I think my first real eye-opener to it was I was invited several years ago to a UN Global Compact conference and you know I think Ban Ki-moon was Secretary General at the time and Obama was hosting uh, that year's global gathering and just to hear the stories of people doing good and hearing from other businesses what it meant to uh, positively impact society and prior to that I'd always been a very ethical and compassionate uh, leader in business but on a much smaller scale so I had a national publishing I had a publishing company and I was publishing you know, a quarter of a million magazines a month at one point I you know, very talented staff of about 30 and what impact did I make different there and I used to really think about our consumption around paper where paper was coming from and um, Mm. making sure we sourced it from trees that were replanted but at the same time trying to evolve the publication digitally Um, I was involved in cosmetics and pharmaceutical distribution in east and west Africa and really trying to get good products to communities at at a fair price so I'd always had touch points where I could make an impact but uh, for a lot of that time I often felt that I had to get into politics to really make a difference Um, and uh, I actually went through the process of trying to become accredited to uh, be an MP but I'd left it far too late and I wasn't necessarily as committed to the party because I am quite outspoken across several topics um, that, that one would hope for so because of that and the timing I ended up owning and controlling with some other investors a large manufacturing organisation, which had 3,000-plus employees. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm not getting into politics to make a difference, because I can't. Uh, my previous businesses have been too small to take make a major difference, but not to discredit the small differences they made, but not at the level that I wanted to be able to do. I now have a business here which has 3,000 people in an industry of garment manufacturing, which is not considered to have best practices, an industry that's not considered to be uh, positive for environment, planet, community, or people. I thought, this is my chance. This is my chance to make a difference. This is my chance to improve lives. It's my chance to bring fresh thinking to an area of business that most people would be mad to get into. (laughs) And decided to uh, hunker down in Sri Lanka where I had three garment factories, working with some uh, pretty respected brands and 
turbocharge positive impact, positive influence, and grow the business at the same time. That was my goal seven years ago. And I made a number of changes which really became quite widely recognized uh, through through brands which generated further business. So, you know, I launched a... Um, I'm going to just talk about little things that I did here, Laura, which led to those recognitions. So I started... Um, providing smear tests to all the workforce, uh, sexual health clinics, family planning, um, working with cancer hospitals to uh, be able to treat women which had um, uh, cells which might have been precancerous, educate people on what, what um, uh, the smear test was for, uh, provide people with education on their options mm. in terms of uh, family planning, uh, creating healthy and environments that people can thrive in, creating career ladders, making it clear that if you've just started with the organization, you're a machine operator, there's no reason that one day you can't be a CEO. Um, Recognizing that the workforce was the business, my colleagues were the business and the business didn't exist without them. So if you're a a Formula One team, you're going to keep your car extremely pristine because that's your business. You should therefore keep Mm. your your colleagues, if they're the business, in, in, in the best shape. Uh, mentally, physically, the environment they're in. And brands recognize that quite quickly. And brands tend to be lazy. So they'll set uh, agendas, they'll set goals, and they will push suppliers to to meet those. But if a supplier comes along and leapfrogs, you've done half the work for, for the brand quite quickly to make the brand look better, make the brand more compliant, and also make it clear to the other manufacturers that they need to catch up pace because standards are changing. And uh, I, I embarked on a, a strategy of trying to grow the business through doing good and being recognized for doing good. It's, and at the same time, demonstrating to the brands that it doesn't cost more. So typically, people will think if my clothes are organic or ethically manufactured or sourced, they, they should come with a cost. That doesn't always mean the case. That it doesn't always translate. Yeah. You know, let's look at brands like Patagonia. They sell denim jeans for 50 or 60 pounds. Their impact on environment is minimal to none. In fact, you buy a pair of Patagonia Mm. jeans, you're probably going to be contributing to the protection of rainforests. The workforce is paid uh, extremely well for for their peers in, in the same countries. There's transparency, there's honesty, there is tax being paid, and there's a planet and society being protected. And they can sell those jeans for 60 quid. Yeah. So why are other brands charging up to three, four hundred pounds and can't say the same? You know, what's really interesting, and I didn't know this about you, is that you um, at one point were interested in in going into politics because you wanted to make a difference. And clearly to date, you have made a real difference, arguably more so than um, a backbench MP anyway would be probably able to do. Um but you've been very good at engaging with politics, with politicians and government um, in Westminster. And that's how, of course, we met. Yeah. So just for the listeners, I mean, Dom and I, we met in Ethiopia when I was traveling with my then boss, who was Secretary of State for International Development. And we were going to go and check out this huge industrial park where Dom has one of his factories um so that that's how we met which is 
it's quite <laughs> on that sort of like plane that we weren't too sure if we were going to survive that plane flight or at least I was definitely <laughs> a bit nervous getting onto that 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 flight but you've clearly had a you know you've made a real impact you've had great interactions with with Westminster and you have been showing to Westminster the premise of doing good is good business and the overlap that this has with international development and in particular with the sustainable development goals which of course if we ever want to achieve them you're going to need businesses to do their part as well so you, you first went to Sri Lanka and then you you've expanded hugely yeah. by setting up businesses and factories in other developing countries what how did that you know what were the challenges that you faced whilst doing that well I've been very lucky and um, by, by showing brands that I could do good brands wanted to work with me more but I needed to offer savings and it was clear that by expanding the manufacturing base out of Sri Lanka to East Africa uh, Kenya and Ethiopia in particular we could offer brands international savings on their duty so out of the Ethiopia to the US on a synthetic ladies panty you can save up to 32 percent out of Bangladesh when those goods arrive in the US you have to pay 32 percent and I'd spent some time in Uganda uh, when I was around the age of 20, 21, working with rural uh, communities, hand-to-mouth subsistence farming communities that were very much reliant on international aid and, and char- the charitable sector. So for me to be able to get back to Africa, create jobs and provide benefits to the customers as well, uh, and provide benefits to the community, for me that was a win-win. Uh, yeah, what could be better? Going to a region which so desperately needs investment, such as uh, Hawassa in Ethiopia, uh, providing um, healthcare, providing food, providing transport, uh, being able to provide uh, education, family planning. These were dreams for me. And at the same time, being able to grow business. Just imagine, you're mm. able to help people and you're able to build a business and brands are able to benefit from the duty savings, but also recognise the work that is being able to be done in compliance and drive other manufacturers to be just as compliant or raise their bar to the level uh, beyond mine. So I, I threw down the challenge, the gauntlet, and I made it possible. I showed to people that it could be done. And, you know, it's great to be able to host you there. Um, I think it was back in 2018. Mm. It would have been in Hawassa. Yeah, it would have been. Secretary of State visited. So you've seen firsthand. And I remember, actually, you sitting in a room with uh, some of my colleagues, several ladies that were victims of sexual abuse and yeah. domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite a tearful meeting. And yeah, the last it was thing very moving. Is, is is cry in front of people who've had it 10 times harder than you. Mm. And those, I remember uh, yourself and Penny were, were spending time just chatting over a cup of tea. And one of you asked the question saying, what, what has this, what has the work that Dominic's been able to do here provide for you? And the girls said, I, one lady said to you, I've got my life back. I thought I was dead. I thought I was over. It was over. I mm. thought there was nothing left for me. And by working here today, I have my own house. 
I'm able to provide for my child and I, I see a future. Yeah. And I, I don't know if, if you're aware, but that lady, had, she, her child was born through rape. Yeah, no, and I she remember. she was living in a, um, in a, I wouldn't even call it a commune, a safe house uh, in, in the slums of the town where it was, wasn't safe for her to leave and she was relying on handouts of scraps and food. And I discovered that safe house one day I was driving and I tried to get in much deeper to the community and it, it said, I think it was a Mother Teresa safe house. And I went in and I said, I met the nuns and I said, what's going on here? This looks horrendous. You do know I'm looking to provide jobs and support the community. And we've saved hundreds of, of young ladies uh, through building that factory. We've got them um, back on their feet, back into society, a chance of, of having life back and we provide the counselling and the consultation and support that they need and I couldn't have done that as a backbench politician um I couldn't have done that as a, mm. an MP I could probably only, I could have probably only done it if I got to a secretary of state role yeah and I wanted to make the change today I don't want to make it in 10 years Laura there's going to be new challenges then yeah and my engagement with Westminster I think has always been positive because I know myself I don't want people to come with problems I want people to come with solutions yeah and I've got very demonstrable solutions which can uh, help British interests, help British aid and development, help British businesses, but most importantly, help the most vulnerable and the most poor. And I think that's where Britain has a huge opportunity and, so, and a lot of respect to be garnered from. So, Dom, how can we encourage other business leaders to do similar stuff, to also do good and set up or, you know, even set up businesses in developing countries like you did well it's, it's two questions there how do you get business to do good and that's relevant for wherever they operate and how do we get businesses to invest in developing countries the first question there's an expression i i picked up the other day from uh someone which i really liked and i think it, it is relevant for this it's called the spiky carrot so uh you dangle the carrot of good, but if you try and bite it off before you're allowed it, you're going to get um, a spike in your gut. <laughs> and it's quite interesting. I don't think we should go around with a an axe and start beating business leaders over the head. I think there's an interesting work to be done with a spiky carrot. We shouldn't be going around smacking people over the heads with clubs and telling them to do good. We need to, unfortunately, particularly those setting their their ways, we need to show them the path to good. Um, and make it clear that if they don't come go down it, it is going to be a painful road. I don't even know if that's a road back. I think it's going to be a road into a pit at some point. Mm. But governments um, do need to be better. We have the legislation, uh, but we're not enforcing it well enough, as we've seen with the Modern Slavery Act and through supply chains. The, the, the government has the power to enforce, but it doesn't seem to be taking that grip yet. So I do feel that government has a role to play with the legislation that's in play. But my job is not to go around, as I said, pointing fingers at people. I feel the government can play the spiky part. I think my job is to show people that how, how orange and juicy the carrot can be if you do good. And the, the results that can be be seen from that by treating people positively, by being a compassionate leader, by empowering those around you, having the right retention schemes, providing, understanding that if people aren't fed, they're not going to perform well at work. If people aren't watered, they're not going to perform well. 
getting into the communities. And, and this isn't just an issue that happens in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. There are businesses in the UK today which exploit their workforces. Hmm. Uh, so we can do good wherever we are. Um, and we Thank know you. that in pick and pack facilities or on farms, people are not allowed to go to the toilet. They're not allowed. To, they might be charged for their accommodation, which costs more than the accommodation that than the work that they're getting paid. And, and the employers provide you accommodation. There's lots of exploitation going on in all of society. And it, it happens through supply chains. Even when you step into your local supermarket, there may be a level of exploitation or abuse through that system. Um, so we need to encourage people and businesses that doing good is good business and, and having conversations and speaking about it. Are you hopeful that the younger generations are more basically more vocal about these type of issues? That they care about how their the businesses, that the shops, the brands they buy from are purpose led, as it were? I think we're starting to see uh, younger people become more and more um, aware of the impact they may be having on others. Uh, certainly talking about it more, tweeting it more, Instagramming it more, um, and possibly spending their money with brands that they respect for having purpose and doing good. But I feel we're still in a phase where it's more conversation and action, um, not just with young people, but across generations. And we see you know a lot of people stand up with a lot of passion and energy and highlighting uh, the wrongs and ill-gotten gains of society but we don't i don't see enough demands like concrete actionable demands that can demonstrate outcomes and we need to turn the passion into uh, realities and i don't think business i think business leaders are still surviving on the fact that people might ask for something, but they don't necessarily do something. I'd like to think that younger people and all generations will vote better in the future and will spend their money in the right places in the future. Um, we need to, and I'm not suggesting boycotts here, it, it, I'm, you know, businesses hopefully we'll see that they are losing money because people are not pleased with their practices and therefore we'll be you know, slowly adjusting. For example, we have people um, rightly highlighting issues of climate change but still drive a petrol car. Yeah, It's really difficult when you drive a petrol car to decide which petrol station to go to over the other because they're all doing the same damage. What you need to do is buy an electric car or cycle. Um, so... Unfortunately, it's not easy for people to do that. Electric cars are expensive or they might live in a rural community where they can't cycle. Um, so this is what I mean, that there's a lot of sacrifices people need to make to represent the requests that they're asking for. Yeah. And I don't feel that people are selfless enough. I don't think there's enough people that are selfless enough to give up everything that they, uh, they want to action everything that they believe in. And this is the challenge with sustainability. Yeah. One of the things we're asking in this podcast series is, you know, whether there's an individual who's had in you know, particular impact in your life, who would you say that that person is for you? <laughs> People think I must be mad, but I often refer to a, a character uh, that Q Grant played in the movie Love Action because he showed 
a very compassionate and uh, caring individual that was also in a position to to to, to lead Britain and and stand up to bullies. And I, I really like that uh, that part that Hugh Grant plays because I think it inspires people. Yeah, um, the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda, she feel for me feels like the the, the living day version of the the Prime Minister in in Love Actually. She. She seems to really care and be compassionate and stands up for what she believes in and puts politics to a side. Mm. Um, but it is easier for her. She's such a champion and such an in, in, inspiration. But at the same time, she, when you've got a country of less than five million, it's easier to make changes. Mm. I, I appreciate here in the UK when you've got 70 million people and a number of foreign territories to manage and being on the permanent member of the UN Security Council and the EU, it's, 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 it's a lot harder to balance and devolve nations. Um, but I would like to think we could have a Prime Minister that could uh, have the same compassion as uh, Hugh Grant in love, actually. That is, a, that is an interesting twist <laughs> to a conversation, Dom, I love it. Hugh Grant <laughs> is not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> but that, that's really interesting. And um, so just looking at the future, what would you say the main idea is that you are is on your mind or that you want to pursue going forward? Well, one of the things um, that I'm very keen to do is start to get people to think about just because something is legal today doesn't mean it's going to be legal tomorrow and how we can really start to challenge ourselves on what is accepted in society today but should not be. And how do we push that forwards? Um, we're seeing through the conversations we're having as, as a country around uh, you know, Black Lives Matters uh, and the equality conversations. I think that's a good chance because we're, we're, we're looking at what was done wrong in the past and how has it not been righted yet today? And I also feel we need to look at what is being done today that in 100 years' time people will look back and say that shouldn't have happened. Society shouldn't have been, have been run like that. Businesses should have not been acting like that. So I'm keen to explore conversations over the coming months and years of understanding just because it is legal today doesn't mean it is right and should it be illegal tomorrow. And I'm sure there's lots of areas to be explored there and there'll be lots of ideas people have. You know, the UK has some pretty fantastic legislation, but there are things that slip through the gaps. Mm -hmm. um, and there are policies which are detrimental to uh, society that, that really need to be looked at. And often they're not because it is the norm. Um, it is accepted. It's because that's how we've always done it. And I would like to think that in the first instance we can encourage businesses people leaders uh, to change and if they don't we need to legislate for it but at the same time you'll know better than I Laura there is a lot of legislation that's just not enforced uh, at present and that probably needs to be looked at so uh, you know I, I'm always on a personal mission to, to try and better the lives of uh, for, for, for everyone and that's something I'd like to explore. In terms of my 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 business activities, you know, I'm looking more and more at how we can support 
developing economies, investment opportunities to support uh, the, the SDGs in developing economies and, and support other businesses and investors to, to thrive in uh, continents uh, such as Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, and working with organisations. So I'm very proud to have just been appointed a trustee for the ODI. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. Which is turning 60 this year. So working with them a lot on what the next 60 years look like, uh, you know, engaging uh, organisations like the ODI better with businesses, um, providing that research, that the, the thought leadership that the ODI uh, specialises in, and helping governments and businesses come together on the same page through evidence and facts uh, and conversation, uh, and and really working to get the cost of trade down with organisations like Trademark East Africa, and making sure that their role is is able to um, and the work that they do is understood by governments and businesses and engaged better in seeing how. You know, working with organisations like Trademark East Africa, you can actually uh, uh, do very cost-effective business in, in the likes of Kenya and Ethiopia and Rwanda, Uganda, making sure business is aware of those organisations and really seeing the opportunities that they're able to present. As, as governments invest in infrastructure, we're now bringing more communities into society. So we have to make sure cost of internet is... Is, is low. We have to make sure that there's access to technology, that people are not just literate and able to read and write, that people can use a computer. Yeah. If they can use a computer, they've got access to internet. There's so much more we need to do to get a, a level playing field. And given that buyers from supermarkets and brands can't travel, there's an opportunity for everyone to get onto the same market, digital marketplaces. And these are areas that I'm really keen to explore and develop and, and get 100 million day traders trading with the rest of the world would be a huge achievement. And um, I'm, I'm conscious I haven't asked you about an object yet. So what would you say? <laughs> what object has, I guess, influenced you or is important to you in in some way? Well, um, I was... Uh, a function back in November, December of 2019, celebrating the best of African talent in in uh, in the UK, and I was had the pleasure of hosting uh, or being hosted and sitting with the Kenyan ambassador to Britain, uh, a gentleman called Manoa, and he had uh, it's very popular and common in Kenya to wear. Um, a hand-woven beaded bracelet with the colours of Kenya. And you, you often see uh, local Maasai right through to the bank manager of your local branch wearing a, uh, a beaded bracelet. And I, I said to the ambassador, I said, oh, I've, I've, I've lost my bracelet from when I was in last travelling in Kenya. He said, don't worry, Dominic, I brought you one. And he put it on my wrist. And... I just got back from staying in a refugee camp in northern Kenya called Kakuma, where I was working with young entrepreneurs. And I haven't, I was supposed to go back to Kenya in March this year of 2020, and I haven't been able to go back. So throughout lockdown, I've been wearing this bracelet just to remind me um, of, of the people 
in, 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 in Kenya. And the people in sub-Saharan Africa who are far less fortunate than us and what is going on today with food insecurity and, you know, countries going to be further pushed into poverty due to coronavirus. Yeah. This just reminds me and stimulates me every day. I've got to get back to the continent. I've got to get back to Kenya. I've got to get back to Uganda and Ethiopia. And That's lovely. Uh, got to see what I can do. Yeah, that's, that's I'm looking at it now. That's really lovely. Um. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna do some quick fire questions. Yeah. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. <laughs> um. So, um. What book are you reading at the moment? Oh, I don't read books. I'm really bad. Do you not? I you don't read, read books. journals. No. You read so journals. Bad. I um. I read. A, I read a lot of research. <laughs> Um, I'm currently hey, reading that's, a 79-page that, dossier on uh, imp- uh, economic outlook for Bangladesh. <laughs> wow. Okay, that is that is really impressing. impressive. Impressive. Um, could be depressing. Probably more depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you could have dinner with, uh, if you could have any, if <clears throat> if you could have any free people dead or alive, over for dinner, who would they be? Oh, I don't want to go for the obvious ones. Um, who would I have dinner with? I, it has to, I, it has to be, you know, Nelson Mandela. I know it's obvious, but it's, it's so true. And that is, it's why he's there. He's, his thought leadership and the, the battles he's been through and, and having worked with, um, and supported a number of his causes and campaigns uh, mm-hmm. w- would be would be amazing. Um, and I'm also going to say the Dalai Lama. It sounds okay. I, I don't, it, you know, the the, the peace and uh, the harmony that he 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 tries to inspire. And I would yeah. like to, um, would very much like to sit down with someone like Bill Gates. Yeah. That that you know those are that that's that would be a fascinating uh, dinner dinner <laughs> for sure. Well, they probably all know each other. I'm sure they've all had dinner together, the three of them before. Um, <laughs> they've yet to meet Don McVeigh, though. <laughs> exactly, I'm the missing piece. Um, the Dalai Lama and Bill Gates. Who knows? You might you might have an opportunity one day. I wouldn't be surprised if you meet Bill Gates in the next couple of years. And um, what would you say the best piece of advice is that you have ever received? No such word as can't. That's good, yeah. If you could um, uh, pass on an important life lesson for for someone to learn, that's a final question, what what would that be, Dom? Well, can I give two? Yeah. And I've said it before, but I just want to reiterate and emphasise it. Doing good is good business. I've learned that Mm -hmm. and I've proven that. And I want, I really want people to think about just because something is legal today doesn't mean it's right. Uh, I really want people to think about what that means to them, what that means to their, their, their staff, what it means to them if, about their boss, their organisation, their friends, their supply chains. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you are looking for more content, make sure to become a friend of The Big Tent to join their digital events. It is only £6 a month. 
And please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast, which will really help. And of course, please spread the word and share on Twitter and all of that. If you've got any feedback or special requests, you can contact me on Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.